Hey, it's your host, Kamea Shane, and you're listening to Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to collective healing, ecological regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. As a community-powered show made possible by listeners like you, we're calling in your direct support starting at a gift of $2, which really adds up for us to help us sustain and keep the show going. So if you're learning from and value these conversations, you can join our community at greendreamer.com support. And also, we just relaunched our weekly newsletter. So if you want our episodes, resources and recommendations sent to you, you can sign up at greendreamer.com. And now on to today's episode, which is a republication of our past conversation with Charles Eisenstein. What is lost among the epidemiological and virological conversation are things like natural and holistic approaches to boosting immunity and and even resisting resisting uh, viral infections and and the whole larger conversation about the microbiome and the virome and how we are embedded in a web of genetic and biological relationships and so forth. And when we just focus on the separate self and define health as the integrity of this separate self, there's so much that we don't see. Charles is a renowned public speaker and author whose work covers a wide range of topics, including the history of human civilization, economics, spirituality, and the ecology movement. Some of the primary themes that he explores include anti-consumerism, interdependence, and how myth and narrative influence culture. And he begins here by giving us a glimpse into his background and early inspirations. I have my own personal narrative about how I came to do what I do. But on another level, who knows? You know, it's, it's a mystery why, why we choose the life paths that we do. But I remember from a very early age caring a lot about the environment, um, about I, – I remember – the, the very, I have various memories from childhood of, of really memories of disturbance when, for example, we visited Yellowstone National Park one time when I was maybe 12, 12 years old. And, and I, we were hiking deep into the park and we ended up at, there was this pond. It was just me and my dad. And there were these three or four young men who were, hurling rocks at at this otter that was swimming in the pond and like trying to kill it you know and i just couldn't understand uh it just it was just so painful to to see that happening and to not be able to do anything about it and that feeling i came to recognize very intimately over the years as i learned about the ecological destruction happening on earth and the injustice, the trauma happening to human beings, the, the almost like cosmic scale of the destruction. And I would feel the same feeling of, of like this empathic pain and also helplessness, powerlessness to do anything about it except watch. And I, I wanted to understand I, I, and maybe it was the, the discomfort of the feeling of powerlessness that drove me to want to understand, well, what can I do about it when 
just like in that situation, me and my dad weren't going to be able to make these four brawny young men who are, you know, carrying rocks to stop. We weren't going to be able to force them to stop in the same way as we probably aren't going to be able to force the military, industrial, pharmaceutical, medical, NGO, financial, industrial complex to stop. But is there some other way to meet this situation that that became and it wasn't this one event that precipitated this quest, but it was it was it was part of a of a history that that propelled me on this on this search. Mm-hmm. And I could, you know, tell you many other books or experiences that I that I encountered, but that that one kind of sums them all up. A lot of discussions by environmentalists on the coronavirus pandemic have involved talking about what we can learn from this time to apply to our response to the climate crisis. And I'd like to take a different approach here and first talk about our dominant incomplete responses to climate change and how we can draw parallels from that with our dominant responses to also criminal justice reform and then the coronavirus pandemic, as these are two things that have been at the top of mind for so many people. So your book, Climate, details how the quantification of the natural world leads to a lack of integration and our fight mentality. With an entire chapter unpacking the climate change deniers' point of view, you advocate for expanding our exclusive focus on carbon emissions to see the broader picture beyond our short-sighted and incomplete approach, end quote. I'm wondering what your take is on why we've had this tendency to center the climate change discussion around carbon dioxide which may have diminished so many other parts to this whole that are equally important. And what has been the cost of this myopic view in our responses? Yeah, well, thank you. That's that's a that question is very well, well, well framed. So, yeah, in I mean, this is almost universal in our society that to to exclude and marginalize the things that are actually the most precious or actually the most important, at least the most important to coming to healing. So in the case of criminal justice, for example, uh, what our society generally leaves out is the conditions that create crime to begin with. And instead, it's all about punishment. In the case of coronavirus, what is lost among the epidemiological and virological conversation are things like natural and holistic approaches to boosting immunity and and even resisting resisting uh, viral infections and and the whole larger conversation about the microbiome and the virome and how we are embedded in a web of genetic and biological relationships and so forth. And when we just focus on the separate self and define health as the integrity of this separate self, there's so much that we don't see, including solutions to the to the current crisis that are actually much more accessible and much less expensive than the pharmaceutical and vaccine based approach not to mention lockdown and quarantine that's being applied today and so it's it's about and I will get to climate change in a second but it's but so for example it might be about bringing in traditional medicines and 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 I mean medicines in both senses, specific therapies and substances, but also uh, ways of doing medicine. 
that are outside of the dominant culture today. And so climate change is the same. Oh, oh and I could also link this to, to, okay, so you asked, you know, why, what's underneath the, the obsessive focus on carbon dioxide? It's kind of within our comfort zone to find an enemy and to frame the problem along the lines of, here's an enemy to destroy, here's something to dominate. Same thing with COVID-19. You, you, you identify a health crisis with a virus. And I'm not saying that there is not a virus or that it's a hoax or that the virus isn't making people sick. But think about it. Like compared to the epidemic in our lifetimes of autoimmunity, allergies, depression, I mean, all of suicide, all of these things have been skyrocketing. The prevalence of childhood chronic conditions, for example, uh, according to Dr. Zach Bush, having increased from 1% in the 70s or 80s to 52% today, like we have an ongoing pandemic of diseases that you cannot identify a causal agent, a one bad thing to go to war against. So, so we just kind of ignore those crises and focus on the ones where there's something to kill, something to exclude, something to bomb something to, to imprison, something to control. So climate change as well, we face an ecological crisis that in my view cannot be reduced to one substance. It's tempting to say, oh, uh, insect Armageddon, you know, decline, 80% decline in flying insect biomass. Well, that must be caused by, by global warming, which is caused by greenhouse gases or Plankton counts declining in the ocean. That must be called, you know, increasing floods and droughts. Oh, climate change. Like, it's so convenient and so comfortable for our, our way of thinking to locate the source of a problem in one thing that, especially one thing that we can quantify and control and problem solved. I feel like we just have this inner desire to really want to be able to make sense of the world. So the easy way to do that is to oversimplify the complexity of the world in order to feel like we understand it, as opposed to really leaning into the gray and all the complexity that's embedded in all of this. And you touched on so many things in your response that I really want to dive into, specifically the intersection between healing our ecosystems and reforming our criminal justice system is something that I've been thinking about a lot. So for example, regenerative earth stewardship invites us to ask, how can we create the conditions that allow biodiversity and life to thrive, rather than simply targeting and attempting to get rid of the symptoms of the problem, like pests, weeds, or a lack of soil fertility. And similarly, transformative justice also invites us to examine the larger conditions that lead people to act out and respond with unwanted behavior or violence in the first place. Rather than simply imprisoning and casting aside these people we label as being bad, period, which may really be symptoms of larger societal issues manifesting in harmful individual responses. So I'm wondering if you can talk more about how our war mentality in dealing with crime has not only failed us, but may have even worsened or perpetuated social injustice and violence. I mean, it's pretty obvious how it worsens the conditions that create crime, because when you, for example, uh, destroy families and communities by imprisoning the youth and deprive 
children of positive male role models because they're not even present, you know, you're going to create the conditions of trauma and deprivation that bring people to act out unlawfully or act out violently. Another of the breeding conditions of crime is obviously poverty and cultural disruption. I mean, there's not one single cause of criminality. And the systems that generate crime include the whole society, include people who would, you know, never commit a violent act, but we participate in in systems of economic exploitation and racial injustice. So it is a lot less comfortable to look at that and a lot more challenging and even a lot more. It's not only that, oh, you know, we don't want to admit our complicity. It's that we don't actually know what to do because we ourselves are locked into the system that depends on inequality. I mean, if you want to exit that system, there's no easy formula. But we wouldn't be able to have this conversation right now if we weren't using Skype that is built on a information backbone uh, and using computers that requires the mining of, of copper and silver and rare earth minerals to construct this technology. Like we're, we're part of it too. There's no way to separate ourselves out and make ourselves into the good guys. And in fact, that impulse, which I'm seeing an awful lot of in environmental and social justice movements right now to, to appear as if you're on team good in this war against team evil. Mm. That very impulse perpetuates the basic conditions of our injustice and ecocide right now. The basic mindset of, of domination, which offers the formula of dominate those bad guys, win the war on evil, win the narrative war, the information war, cancel and call out and deplatform and shame the people who are on team evil so that team good can prevail. Like this whole mindset of domination, that is the origin of the problem to begin with. That's the, the template for ecocide. That's the template for exploitation. That's the template for racism. Mm. So, so this is, you know, it just, it just points to how thoroughly systemic and, and how deeply and thoroughly systemic our current conditions are. It's not the superficial level of finding the bad guy and tearing them down, which is what Hollywood movies offer as the solution to a problem. This we're this is the, the revolution is to move beyond that. You and you talked about uh, I can't remember the term you used. Regenerative justice. What, what did you say? Uh, transformative justice. Transformative justice. Yeah, to transform the conditions that that are responsible for injustice instead of to blame it on certain people, whether it's the right blaming it on, you know, welfare queens or whatever racist stereotype you want to offer for, you know, or thugs or something like that, or the left blaming it on racists and white supremacists and misogynists. It's like both sides are united in agreement mm. that the problem are these despicable people. <laughs> and I'm like, you guys are actually both on the same side. You're both in agreement. And it's 
an agreement that will generate an endless supply of outrages and atrocities to feed that very worldview. And are you willing to let go of having anybody to hate? Are you willing to let go of any target for your righteous indignation if that's what it takes to bring actual healing? And you may not get to look like the hero. You may not get to finally be proven right. You may not see those who you've judged suffer punishment. Are you willing to sacrifice that if that's what it takes to have a racially, economically, and socially uh, and environmentally healed society? This also leads me to wonder whether it's possible for an individual person to be ethical within an unethical and exploitative system, or whether it's possible for one person to so-called be living sustainably within a larger system that is extractive and unsustainable. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like we have a tendency both within sustainability and the social justice space to make this feel like individual choices or individual goals. But it leads me to wonder whether you can fully achieve ethical purity and ethical and sustainability at a purely individualistic level. And why would you want to? For me, I would like us to replace our aspirations to be ethical with an aspiration to be helpful, an aspiration to be useful. Because, it, I mean, what's the goal of being ethical? Is, that you, is it that you get to celebrate yourself for how ethical you are? Is it in order to get off the hook when somebody comes at you with condemnation or accusation and to be able to demonstrate, no, 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 uh, you can't attack me because I have a much smaller ecological footprint than that person over there and I've done my, you know, white fragility work, et cetera, et cetera, and and like it's 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 almost this coded in-group uh, inclusion mechanism. It's like it's like here's how I display my belonging to an in-group, and that's okay. I mean that's what that's what people do. But if you actually want to change conditions, then I, I mean I guess I'm just interested in in what ethics actually codes for people psychologically. Right. And I would just offer as 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 a possibility to replace ethical with helpful, not so that you get to like yourself and and believe yourself to be one of the good guys, but because you actually care about what's happening in the world. How do I help? Not how do I identify, right. but how do I help? Yeah. That also really aligns in my mind with, so you mentioned people not identifying with being ethical, but being helpful. And for me, that brings up this idea of not not identifying as being sustainable, but rather something like regenerative, where it's more so about what you're doing rather than what you've achieved for yourself. Right. And and that requires, um, or it, it, I would say actually just invites us to orient toward the needs around us in a very tangible, practical way. So you might come into a relationship with a piece of land or a relationship with a person or a community. And when you're in that relationship, their needs will speak to your heart if you are stepping into love. 
uh, and you'll respond to those needs. And it won't matter. Because you, you know those needs, it won't matter so much how it looks to other people. In fact, a lot of the most necessary work to be done today is pretty much invisible. You know, it's what it's what we do on a local level. I think we need to actually focus more on the local level and the interpersonal level because that changes the the foundation of our systems. And I'm not saying to not, you know, be active on a political level or anything like that, but the work that is least celebrated ends up being the most important of all. I, I like to ask sometimes, I ask people, who is the most important person in the history of South Africa? Most people would say, well, it's Nelson Mandela. And I understand why they would say that. But then I say, well, how do you know that it wasn't actually Nelson Mandela's grandmother? Because where did he get that resiliency? How did how was he able to go through decades in prison and come out not thirsting for revenge, but thirsting for peace and healing? Uh, and and how was he able to hold that in those conditions? Maybe it was because of the love that his grandmother gave him when he was a boy. I mean, I, I have no idea, actually, but but maybe or maybe it was because of a community of people around him. So why do we celebrate this one man instead of. Well, because he's there to celebrate, he's visible to us. But what about the invisible people who created those conditions that even allowed a Nelson Mandela to exist? Those people, those kinds of people are everywhere, all over society, and they never get celebrated. And no one's ever telling them how important their work is or rewarding them financially for that work. Quite the opposite. You know, they're, I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, the, the woman working at a daycare center, taking care of other people's babies and invisible to anybody, pouring her love into that work. And those kids grow up and they don't even remember her. But imprinted in them is that experience of having received an extra dose of love when they were too young to even remember it. Like those kinds of people and the opportunities to act in that way in our relationships with people and with other beings, those are available all the time, but they're just not as, as uh, glamorous or celebrated and, or uh, useful in warding off the condemnation that might come if you are not political. And I guess this is also part of the reason why our economic system needs to be transformed because it does not currently value people for their inherent worth and for all these meaningful ways that people are and have been contributing to our society. Right. I mean, mostly it values people for how they contribute to the world destroying machine, mm. you know, how they participate in the extraction of resources and the exploitation of labor. And I'm not saying that, you know, every job and every paycheck is contributing to that, but Generally speaking, what economic growth is, is the conversion of nature into products and relationships into services. So it's hard to avoid participating in that process in our current economic system. And so, like you're saying, you know, that's why we need, you know, this isn't just a, like from what I said before, it sounds like, oh, you know, Charles is talking about withdrawing from the collective economic political level into the personal 
level, but I'm not saying that. I just don't want to privilege the big over the small. But that doesn't mean to ignore the big, too. We definitely need uh, profound systems change, especially in economics. A lot of our other uh, social injustices are rooted in economics. One, one thing that I've watched with some dismay, actually, is the almost near disappearance of class issues in the current race dialogue when you know, racism is a key enabler of economic inequality, but it's not the cause of it. And if you have a system that demands that some people be exploited, then you need something like racism to say to, to justify it, to say, well, yeah, these people are degraded and, and impoverished because they deserve it, because they are inferior, because I mean, slavery itself was enabled by racism, but it was, in fact, according to some scholars, it was almost invented in order to justify slavery. It wasn't that that people were so racist that they decided to have slaves. It was that in order to justify having slaves, they had to be racist. Mm. So this is this this um, ignoring of class in favor of something much less disruptive to capitalism. Like like capitalism would be just fine with replacing all of the white CEOs with black CEOs or all of the male CEOs with female CEOs and the, the straight generals with gay generals, as long as they continue to perform the job descriptions that capitalism, as we know it, assigns them. So, so anyway, I said a lot there. But. <laughs> so much to think about. And to apply everything that we just discussed to the current pandemic, what's really shown me the incomplete view of our dominant culture and mainstream media's understanding of the coronavirus pandemic is our focus on things like wearing masks, sanitizing every surface, refraining from touching things in public spaces, and social isolation. And those things can be helpful, especially in the short term. But I guess like you, I'm also frustrated by the lack of discussion around what's made us vulnerable to virus pandemics like this one. And even in public health recommendations on dealing with the coronavirus, a lack of discussion on things we know, even in the immediate term, to boost people's immunity, like sleeping early, getting enough rest, eating wholesome and nutritious foods, not living in immense stress, and being able to drink clean water and breathe clean air. But all of which, I guess, become systemic issues when you start to really dig deep to look at how many people don't have access to these things. Right. Uh, yeah, this is Another example of what is left out of the conversation that is actually the most important of all, you know, just as carbon metrics leave out any species that doesn't measurably affect carbon, you know, like, like, you know, bats, for example, or great horned owls or something like that, you know, like environmental issues like that become secondary because they're invisible to the metrics. And there's a lot that you mentioned that is invisible to the metrics of, you know, case fatality rates and total number of cases and total number of deaths and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and this big debate about, you know, is the recent spike, is that due to increased testing or is that due to a genuine surge in cases or if it's both then how much of one and how much of the other? And like there's this, all this discussion 
And what gets left out of the conversation is exactly the things you were talking about that would totally change the equation. Yeah, clean air, clean water, um, just our, our way of life. It's not like people are making dumb choices and are just ignorant of how to live. It's that the system that we are immersed in has compelled us to live in a certain way. You know, if you're stressed and barely making ends meet and and traumatized, like you're going to go to fast food. You know, you're going to go to convenience. It's not that you're a lesser sort of human than the people who have started to, you know, eat local food and cook their own food and become interested in health. It's again, just like with crime, you know, it's the circumstances, mm. which allows us to be a lot more compassionate and less judgy when we interact with people who are, from our eyes, doing it wrong. It's like, what are the conditions? Not, not only the social and economic conditions, but the psychological conditions, the narrative conditions, the story of normal that people are immersed in, where it's totally normal to, you know, drink a 32 ounce soda with your hamburger, you know, like when we realize how all encompassing the conditions are that generate uh, harmful behavior, the first, the first response is uh, bewilderment. It's I, I have no idea what to do because it's so all encompassing. I have no idea what the solution is. And that is such a positive step. No matter what social injustice or environmental horror that we are facing, to go through the territory of I have no idea what to do about it is so valuable because then we're not going to default into actions that pretend to do something about it, but that actually only change things on a very superficial level, if at all, or even make things worse. For example, a lot of the things that we're doing to cut carbon actually are environmentally making things worse. Biofuels plantations, for example, where, where you know huge tracts of virgin forest and subsistence peasant agriculture get cleared away to plant jotropha trees and palm oil plantations and sugarcane and stuff to be made into fuel, like or you know, to be wood chipped. You know, that that solution makes sense when we don't go through the territory of the complexity and all-encompassing nature of the crisis. And so same thing with COVID-19, you know, to, to default to, this, to, to the control-based solutions that don't actually touch the crisis on a deeper level.
In the conspiracy myth, in discussing what we can learn from the underlying truth of the literalism of conspiracy theories around the coronavirus, you touch on our current response to the pandemic being authoritarian. So you say justifiable or not, lockdown, quarantine, surveillance and tracking, censorship of misinformation, suspension of freedom of assembly and other civil liberties, and so on, are indeed authoritarian, end quote. Specifically on censorship of information, I feel like that in of itself was partly what led to the increasing public distrust in journalism and even science. That's where some of that comes from as well. And you say our institutions of knowledge production and our political institutions have betrayed public trust repeatedly. So you highlight their loss of trust is a symptom of a loss of trustworthiness. So all of this leads me to ponder, you know, is the answer to misinformation out there to resort to censorship and giving authority to governments or social media like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube moderators to decide what is fact or fiction? or to train people to become better critical thinkers. And on a similar note is the answer to the increasing prevalence of virus pandemics to resort to targeting and killing the virus itself while creating a more isolated society, or is the answer to, again, examine why our collective immunity has been compromised and work towards improving our public health, which does include social connection? Starting with authoritarianism, and what to do about misinformation. See, the thing is, so like, you, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, government control or the control of Twitter and Facebook moderators and stuff. We, for, for one thing, we have to understand that government and large corporations are one and the same, or that they are two branches of the same entity, basically. Not that they're always in perfect agreement, but they are the dominant powers of our society. So I don't really make much of a distinction, you know, between whether censorship is happening by corporations or by governments. It's, it's pretty much all the same thing. As we move closer and closer to fascism, uh, which is essentially the unity of government and corporations, that is going to become more and more true. And the problem, of course, is when, when it comes to censoring misinformation and disinformation is who decides what is true and what is not, what is dangerous and, and, and what is important and useful. If those who are making those decisions are one and the same with those who are, say, profiting from pharmaceutical medicines or profiting from the military industrial complex, profiting from militarism and, and imperialism and so forth, then to them, what looks like misinformation is going to be anything that questions those institutions. So we have today, there's there's some degree, it's not as much as actually the, um, it's not quite as bad as people are afraid. It's, you know, there's like everybody, like I, I, I see things on YouTube all the time about how YouTube is censoring information. It's a pretty leaky sieve if that is in fact what they are doing, but it is happening, for example. But a lot of it isn't outright censorship. It's more of a subtle control of the narrative. So like, for example, yeah, I mean, everyone's heard of hydroxychloroquine, you know, and, and because Trump said it was effective. And now all of a sudden, if you think that it's effective against COVID-19, then you must be a Trump supporter. And that but 
there are herbal medicines like Stephen Buhner has come up with a complete like three part protocol for preventing and treating COVID-19 that it's not just something that he, you know, pulled out of thin air. It's based on decades of scholarship and citations of hundreds or even thousands of scientific papers, which doesn't prove that it works. But where is the funding to run clinical studies on something like the Buner Protocol or on something like Artemisia annua, which is being used all over Africa to treat COVID-19, just as it, they've used it to treat malaria uh, and had that treatment be suppressed by the pharmaceutical industrial complex or in China using uh, astragalus and other herbal, herbal formulas to very successfully prevent and, and, and treat COVID-19. Like, I'm not, and I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not going to declare to you right now that these things are effective. All I'm asking is, where is the hundreds of millions of dollars of research into these to match the hundreds of millions or billions of research into pharmaceutical I mean, hydrochloroquine is a pharmaceutical drug, actually. You know, I'm not a huge fan of it. But like it's so it's this it's this matter of priorities and what and once that research isn't happening, then of course there's not gonna be authoritative information on it that won't get censored by Facebook because it hasn't become part of the canon of acceptable official information. So, you know, it's, it's, it's more subtle than outright censorship. It's this institutional bias where some things are funded and some aren't. It's not because the scientists are evil. It's because there's no relatively no funding or uh, publishing opportunities or academic promotions uh, available if you're studying things that can't be patented and can't can't be made into profitable treatments. And also that don't fit into the paradigm of killing something as the solution to illness. So, so it's, it's, I wish it were as simple as uh, ending censorship, but it goes much deeper than that. The censorship is just the capstone of a gigantic intellectual and economic structure. And I, uh, so that's like one-tenth of a response to the things you were just brought up. <laughs> Things are never simple. There's always so so much complexity in these topics. And I think it's interesting because it's generally people who lean left in their politics who have been very willingly abiding by these new rules of isolation imposed upon us for the greater good because we want to use this as a means to be able to then achieve our freedom to be close to our friends and neighbors again safely. And it's typically people who lean right, who feel more adamant about maintaining their freedom at all costs, rebelling against these mandates imposed on us. But to me, neither really get us closer to the type of freedom that I think we're yearning for, because by only listening to these sort of myopic war mentality responses to the virus pandemic with the increasing prevalence of virus infections, we can sort of see that this might just take us towards a world where social disconnection and even a fear of social gatherings become normalized. Mm -hmm. And for those who reject collaborative and collective efforts in dealing with crises like this, the cost of their immediate individual freedom may be the lives or livelihood of people they love or even their own health and livelihood which are just other ways of losing your freedom. It's, it's really confusing because 
as far as I knew, uh, criticism or dissent from authority, skepticism about authority, that was supposed to be the left. I mean, that was like a slogan in the 1960s, question authority, rethink everything, and, and uh, you know, tune in, turn on, drop out. It was the, the, the lefties, the peaceniks, the hippies who dropped out of the medical system and of the school system and grew their own food and ate organic, you know, and went to yoga classes and so forth and, and really forged a new path. And now you're right. It seems like it's people who describe themselves as liberal or left are the ones who are most trusting of authority. And it's those who identify with the right who tend to be more skeptical of uh, at least when it comes to COVID-19, the official narratives. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily because they want personal freedom. It's complicated. For some of them, I mean, there definitely are people who are like, don't want to be inconvenienced <laughs> by, by distancing and lockdown. Like, there's definitely that. I mean, there's part of me that, you know, wishes that things were different because I don't want to be inconvenienced. Like I, I will confess to that. But there's also a sense, because I, I tune into some of the uh, right-wing people, uh, some of these groups and websites, you know, and there's also a sense of injustice and indignation and, and, and uh, a resistance to what they see as a totalitarian takeover in the name of biosecurity. So, it's not actually accurate to caricaturize them as just seeking their own personal freedom. It's, it's also getting really murky who's left and who's right these days, because another cornerstone in, in my world of the left is that it's anti-war. And a lot of the anti-war websites are now libertarian or I mean, there's, then there's the neocons, you know, who are even more pro-war than anybody else. So I, I just wonder if this whole left-right distinction is, among other things, breaking down and part of the generalized breakdown in our, our society's defining stories and, and in, it seems like, reality itself. That's, that's one reason why people are adhering so desperately to these partisan polarized narratives because it gives you uh, at least a little security you know it, it tells you here's what's happening and here's who you are in this confusing time so people people like grab that as their security blanket but maybe the traditional uh, ways that we've understood ourselves and categorized ourselves aren't really working anymore and it's not so much right and left, but it is an opportunity to connect across traditional political boundaries and to form, I think I might've said this in that other essay, to, to forge a new populism. Mm. I mean, there's so many issues today that are, that are being used to divide us and to turn our attention away from what we have in common, what our common interest is as a people, uh, one example was I, I talked about class, you know, and it makes me sound like some kind of Marxist, but but just the distraction of race politics today from the generalized decay of modern quality of life. 
over the last generation. What is not being talked about is more important than what is being talked about. It's not that what is being talked about is unimportant, but to the extent that it sets us up into warring camps that expend all of their energy fighting each other and none of their energy digging down into the deeper causes of things, it is a way to maintain the status quo. And the media industrial complex sort of profits off of inciting outrage Mm -hmm. and perpetuating these divisions. So I do feel similarly as well that we're failing to connect on our basic commonalities that we really share just as being human beings. And we've been fixated on a lot of things that are polarizing, but that may not really affect us on a day-to-day basis. So for example, on the race issue, what I fear is that you mentioned this earlier as well, if corporations just replaced white CEOs with with a person of color as the CEO, or if, uh, I don't know, like fossil fuel industries invited some indigenous or black people onto their boards, I worry about the same exploitative and extractive system continuing without really getting to the heart of all of this, getting to the heart of what is driving these injustices in the first place. And right now, I do feel like a lot of different injustices are converging. So there is climate justice, there's racial justice, economic justice, and these are injustices that span the entire political spectrum. So I know a lot of blue collar workers might lean right, at least under my impression, and a lot of people that care about racial justice might lean left. But we all sort of share the same common oppressor in that sense. So I do think it's important now to sort of unite our goals and to work together in our path going forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there is, I think, a value, you know, the word inclusivity, you know, uh, diversity, inclusivity, and so forth. It kind of seems like what it means is, yeah, we're going to bring, you know, people of color and other oppressed minorities into, into the banquet hall and, you know, let them have a seat at, at the table and let them be the CEO and let them help administer the world destroying machine. But really what there's another possibility here that is much healthier, which is, which is to say our civilization has reached an impasse and we don't know what to do. And we need perspectives from outside the mainstream of our civilization. We need the knowledge that the marginalized and oppressed have held. So it's not that so much that we're going to include them, but it's we're, you know, like, come on in to our castle and join the the nobility, you know, (laughs) join the, but it's more like, maybe we're ready to go out and play with them. Mm. Maybe we're ready to, to learn from them. Maybe we're ready to expand beyond what we thought we knew to, to explore ways of knowing and thinking and, and seeing that the modern mind has been conditioned away from. And, and you know, I mentioned ways of, of healing, too. That would be part of it, too. So it's more of a, a moment um, I think it's it's coming because of the failure 
of our system to deliver its promises. The promises being a technological and social utopia that would be brought about by science and reason and markets and technology. Like we, like if you just backtrack to the 50s and 60s, we were so sure that we knew how to do this thing. So sure that we were going to lift up the entire world in what we call development and bring them up to our standards and make them like us and modernize everything. The whole world would, like even this vision of progress is still with us in, in the form of Mark Zuckerberg and, and Bill Gates, you know, aspiring to bring smartphones and computers and broadband to every person on earth. Like that was this messianic vision of, of the triumph of uh, technology and, and our way of thinking. And that is becoming less and less tenable as we not only look at the ongoing destruction that it has wrought socially and ecologically, but even within our own society, that paradise has never manifested. And, and not only has it not manifested among the traditionally oppressed, but now the decay has invaded and hollowed out the even though you know white middle class even the upper middle class now is starting to to fall into the pit mm. uh, and, and even those that, at the top aren't necessarily yes. doing well at a personal level no. other than financially yeah if you want to find a happy human being a joyful human being you're not going to go you're not going to find them in in you know the hamptons or or <laughs> greenwich or beverly hills you're going to find them in uh, a village in Bangladesh. You're going to find them in uh, Ghana or in Peru, in a, you know, in a mountain village. That's where you find people who radiate joy, not in mansions in, in Greenwich, Connecticut. <laughs> Traditions lost, we need to go back to Winds of change Stronger every day. Winds of change. Stronger every day. And that's the that's the sad part, too, is because this narrative is so deeply embedded into our society that everybody who's not up there see that as the place to get to. So everybody yeah. else who currently isn't doing so great, they see that as the place to get to to feel better and to achieve contentment and life satisfaction when the people even up leftists, there haven't even achieved that for themselves. Yeah. Even leftists fall into this trap, but, but by the way that they narrate privilege and they say, okay, these are the privileged. Mm. These are the people for whom the system has worked by even doing that. You're buying into a certain set of values and aspirations and norms that are not actually true. Like and when we understand that this isn't working even for the billionaires. I mean, it is by a certain standard. And, and if we are in the system that we are in now, it is certainly better to be uh, in the 
than to, you know, live in a, a, a ghetto somewhere. But is it actually, I mean, even that I want to question. I, I was in a, uh, a favela in uh, Sao Paulo a couple of years ago. And, you know, there were, <clears throat> there were, people were dirt poor there, like literally dirt poor in that their house didn't have a floor. And that's what dirt poor means. <laughs> Many people were food insecure, but the streets were full of kids and everybody knew each other. And there were a lot of happy people. And there was almost nobody who, who was, I mean, people were actually even in a lot of ways healthier than the American norm, which, you know, suffers, which whatever is on an average of five prescription medicines and a fifth of all women on, you know, antidepressants and half of all children with a chronic condition and 40% of the population uh, overweight or more than that, actually 60%. I mean, you know, the state of our country. And I'm like, how much money does it take to compensate for your, for getting divorced or for your teenager getting addicted to something or suicidal? I mean, these afflictions do not spare the wealthy. And, and this is just another invitation out of a frozen dialogue. In this case, the one that goes by the name of interrogating privilege. Like, mm. let's interrogate privilege on a deeper level than taking the values for granted that we've used to even define what privilege is. Like, what about the privilege of walking outside and knowing the name of every person and their story and of every plant and animal and their medicinal use and, and their relationships with each other? Like, what about that? that we, every human being used to have when we lived in tribes and villages, to be that embedded, to feel that level of belonging, to know everybody around you and every person, every being, every animal, every bird, and to be known and to be related. Like, what about that? That's not actually privilege. Privilege means special rights granted by authority. I mean, the whole concept of privilege depends on an authority to grant or withhold it. Like, what about... I mean, we just need to, to broaden the conversation. And when we do that, it defies traditional left and right categories and provides the basis for uh, a new solidarity. I think all of this shows that we really have to redefine and broaden our perceptions of wealth and poverty because... The ways that we're defining this right now by our dominant culture isn't really working and it's not leading people who are wealthier better off. It's not it doesn't mean that people who live with financial poverty are necessarily worse off. And like you said, um, this was really an aha moment for me. So I really want to thank you for this discussion. Using the word privilege in of itself to talk about people who are better off financially in our system implicitly perpetuates this value system that we're trying to change. So language, mm -hmm. I think, is really important when we're trying to convey certain messages. So this is definitely something 
we should be mindful of and to think about and to apply to other words that we commonly use use as well. And I know you call this time a coming of age ordeal that is presented to us. So I'm wondering what you think is needed for us to make our way through this time. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That was very well put. It's not really so necessarily so much about using the wrong words, but it's just to be aware of what the words encode. Like there's this whole language police thing where where we think that changing the words we use is, I mean, that's the most visible thing, but it's really, even if we keep the words the same, if we can excavate what we mean by them, uh, we can gain a lot of insight. And then once we've done that, maybe our language begins to evolve. Anyway, as far as a coming of age ordeal, yeah, it's what I was saying before about how our our basic way of approaching the world isn't working anymore. And underneath that way of approaching the world that I named as science, technology, markets, reason, et cetera, is a conception of who we are and why we're here. I call it the defining myth of our civilization that upon which our civilization is built, which basically says that who we are is separate individuals uh, in an objective world that does not have the qualities of a self. That, that uh, you know, a human being is a full self and animals maybe have some rudiment of selfhood, but the world, the sun, the moon, water, soil, rocks, wind, clouds, these are just permutations of forces and masses. And they're not, they don't have beingness. They don't have selfhood. That's a defining myth of our civilization that justifies or makes inevitable the treating of the world as if it were not sacred, as if it were just a bunch of stuff. Another part of the defining myth says that because we are separate individuals, our nature is to maximize our self-interest. Like, why wouldn't you if I'm separate from you? But your well-being has nothing to do with my well-being if we're separate. Maybe conditionally it does, but fundamentally I could exploit you and I'll be better off and you'll be worse off. That's, that's the logic of the story of separation. So it applies among ourselves. It applies in our relationship to the world. And, and what I'm saying is that the civilization built on this is at a crisis moment. And that story, that mythology is no longer working. And we have, and it, and it has generated a series of intensifying crises that are like a birth crisis propelling us into a new story as the old disintegrates. And that we are in this key moment now, much like a coming of age, much like an entrance into adulthood, where we learn who we really are, not separate from nature, not separate from each other, but to use Thich Nhat Hanh's word for it, that we are interbeings and that our purpose here is not to dominate nature, conquer nature and transcend nature, but our purpose here is to contribute to nature, to participate in nature, to, to understand that, that Gaia, that earth created us for the same reason that she created all species, which is to make the world even more alive and that our unique gifts are actually for that purpose. That we are, 
I mean, a lot of environmentalists think that we are nature's big mistake, you know, and that the earth would be better off without us. And, and that encodes a profound distrust of this being we call earth. Uh, actually, we are beautiful creations and all of our gifts have a purpose to, to contribute to the unfolding of beauty and complexity and aliveness in the world. And, and maybe, you know, indigenous cultures understand this principle, but as a civilization, we've definitely not acted in that way. And that this breakdown right now is giving us the opportunity to step into our adulthood as a species, to step into our gift, to realize our purpose, to contribute to first it is the healing and regeneration of the world. And then who knows over a span of thousands of years, how we will contribute to the coming alive of the world and the cosmos. But, but right now it's very clear as we step into that new story, that new and ancient story of interbeing, of participation, of the sacredness of all things, of, of relationality, of understanding that anything that happens to you on some level inevitably affects me because we're not, we're not really separate. That anything that, that any, that any country we bomb, that any population that we imprison necessarily means that something is dying or something is imprisoned within ourselves, that any species that goes extinct or any rainforest that cuts down, that gets cut down means that something inside of ourselves has gone extinct too. Something else has been, been made desolate with every desert that we create. There's an inner desolation. That understanding is our graduation into adulthood, into our true purpose. And on an individual level too, like probably a lot of people listening to this have had this moment where you realize that, that the, the old story of how to be human was misleading that the, 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 the ambition to be financially secure, to be powerful, to be dominant, doesn't actually bring any happiness and that we only feel fulfilled and joyful when we are acting on that imperative to contribute to the beauty and aliveness of the world. I also wonder if our story of interbeing and of interrelation and the sacredness of all life is tied at all to our culture's fear of death, or rather whether our culture's fear of death is tied to the story of separation rather than there are some cultures that sort of embrace death as a form of transformation because when you do see all all life as being sacred and this earth as being sacred and you have a broader sense of self it makes you less fearful of the dying and the decay of your personal bodily self right yeah because if the self is nothing but a skin encapsulated consciousness that depends on the brain for its existence, then, then death is the total annihilation of everything. And most cultures did not believe this. They understood the self to be relational. And, and, and that means that when the separate self dies, most of you is still there and then maybe takes another form. I mean, most cultures believed in some kind of afterlife or reincarnation. 
And is it that we have finally become more intelligent than them and we've got it right now? A lot of people, you know, even if that's what our science teaches us, many, many people have had experiences to the contrary. I was just uh, interviewing um, Dr. Edith Ubuntu Chan, whose son basically at age four or five started to relate to her his experiences before he, quote, jumped into her belly. And he has like these detailed memories of what it was like to be in this bardo between between lifetimes. And, you know, just very matter of factly describes like, you know, their old apartment before he was born, what it looked like, like things like that. And many people have experiences that point to a larger self than the Cartesian skin encapsulated ego, uh, a larger self than the genetically programmed biological meat machine, a larger self than the Adam Smithian economic interest maximizing actor. And, and as, as we embrace that larger self, death becomes much less scary. And I think that as we embrace that, we could look even at something as practical as the COVID-19 response in with different eyes, because right now the response is all about, quote, saving lives, which is actually a misnomer. Uh, there's no such thing as saving lives. It's actually postponing death because <laughs> we're all going to die. And But we might say, you know, is life prolongation actually the highest value? Higher, like if, if, if we could preserve our life expectancy, our average life expectancy by never having festivals, dances, uh, weddings, concerts, choirs again, like if that's what it takes, should we do it? Is there a time to, to, to balance the value of risk minimization or safety with other values? To, to live more fully rather than to just try to survive as long as possible. Ultimately, it's going to come down to questions like that because COVID-19 could be replaced by COVID-20, COVID-21. It mutates. Uh, immunity doesn't last. Now comes the flu. Now comes some other disease. As long as we hold as the highest value, quote, saving lives, then we are going to never go back to normal because we can always be safer. And all of the totalitarian stuff is, I'm not saying it's going to be, uh, it'll be permanent. That's what I'm saying. And, you know, it might come in fits and starts, but right now the precedent has been sense has been set of safety above all else. And I'm not saying safety is not important, but there are other values too. And the other values become more prominent as we change our attitudes about death. 
Not to mention, there are also a lot of other epidemics that potentially have higher death rates than COVID-19. But I could go on and on with you. So I think we have to wrap up. Um, what is your recommendation to our listener who simultaneously feels too small to make a difference, but also that they can't live with themselves if they didn't do what they can? And specifically, what is there? What, what can we do to help our human collective to reintegrate back into this tribe of all life on Earth? Well, what any given person should do depends uniquely on their circumstances. I would just say that as we embrace our purpose here of contributing to the aliveness, the healing, the beauty of the world, and, and we really embrace that and we know that is true of ourselves, then we notice opportunities to act on that that we may not have noticed before. And we have courage that may not have been present before. And we become willing to sacrifice things in our lives that don't contribute to that. So just without even forcing ourselves to do it, our preferences change, our likes and dislikes, um, what makes us feel good, our desires, these all change as we embrace new information. Or as we, and it's not even new information, so I would just uh, advise people to take a moment to simply feel the truth that your purpose here is to contribute to the aliveness, healing, and beauty of this planet. Well, Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Charles's writing, books, and speaking, you can head to charleseisenstein.org. Charles, it's been an incredible honor to have you here. Thank you so much for this deeply enriching and thought-provoking conversation. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Uh, well, thank you, Kamei. I really uh, enjoyed it. Um, as for final words, any naivete that you have, any innocence, any Daring to do something unrealistic is such a treasure because according to what we've learned, what we've been taught, let's say, a, a, a truly healed world is impossible. And how much of we else have we been told is impossible, that is actually possible? So that impulse that is especially characteristic of young people to disbelieve the limitations that society has offered. That's a treasure. And it doesn't mean you won't make mistakes. It doesn't mean that there aren't limitations. But they aren't what we've been told they are. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To support the show starting from just $2 or to make a larger tax-deductible donation, you can head to patreon.com slash green dreamer. Without a media network or marketing agency behind us, we also rely entirely on word of mouth so that our extensive archive of conversations can reach and inspire more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with friends or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps so much and we are so grateful. The song featured in this episode is Mother by Jared Sowen, offered to us by Indigenous Cloud. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. 
Take care and I will catch you soon in the next episode. 